John chapter 20, verse 30. The inerrant, infallible word of God. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Stop me if I've told you this one before. I have a friend who starts most of his stories with that, although I've never heard anyone stop him. Sometimes hearing a repeated story gets old, especially when it wasn't that good of a story to start with. But the really great ones, in person, book, or film, we don't mind hearing them again. When it's something important that we need to learn or remember, repetition is actually valuable. Aristotle supposedly said that frequent repetition produces a natural tendency. Many modern studies show that repetition is essential to learning and retaining information and behavior. Another thing that's helpful for understanding is getting multiple perspectives. Facts don't change based on who is experiencing them, but the impact of specific facts. Their application, the nuance of which are critical to real understanding, those things do vary from person to person. Ask me for my perspective and you'll learn something about my marriage. Then ask Daphne. Even from the same set of facts, you'll get an answer that is not the same, but contributes to richer understanding. You can likely tell by now that I've begun with a soft defense for the existence of John's gospel. God's ways are perfect. The inclusion of four gospel books in the New Testament, in one respect, needs no defense. It's also not difficult, even from a limited human understanding, to see some of the ways that four gospels really are better than one. John most likely wrote his gospel last of the four. An advantage we've seen of this already, is that John is able to assume prior familiarity with the subject matter by most of his readers. He skips things and omits things because he figures that you've read one or more of those Gospels. We read Luke, who in his own organized way wrote a comprehensive historical record. Luke provided an orderly account of the life of the man Jesus of Nazareth, and how that life fits into the history of the Jewish people and the world that God made. Mark had already written his action-packed Cliff's Notes edition gospel. As one of my seminary professors used to say, Mark is the just-the-facts man of the four gospels. And that was particularly useful for Gentiles who didn't know about or really care about Jewish history. On the other end of that spectrum is Matthew. His gospel is very interested in Jewish history and how Jesus is the linchpin and the climax of the whole Jewish religion. Most of John's readers will have read at least one of these. And we've read all of them. So why did John write another gospel? Not that he hasn't said so already, but in this morning's passage, we receive a clear and concise answer to that question. It begins by noticing 
what is an implicit therefore, which connects these verses to Thomas's, my Lord and my God, and Jesus' beatitude in response. You see, faith like Thomas's, faith that is the result of seeing, is good. The faith that comes from hearing is better. And this kind of faith from hearing is what will be required for every subsequent generation of Christians after John. And John sets the purpose of his gospel squarely within that context. One scholar paraphrases, those who have not seen the risen Christ and yet believe are blessed. Therefore, this book has been composed to the end that you will believe and be blessed. John puts forth first his evangelistic purpose, that you may believe. This belief must come by hearing rather than by seeing, and this belief is how you will be saved, that believing, he says, you may have life in his name. John is not just preparing you for a Bible quiz or for the religion category of Jeopardy. He's preparing you for eternity. His goal is that all who hear would believe and be saved. His writing has been very carefully structured for that purpose. His gospel confronts us with the same propositional truths, the same facts as the other gospel. But uniquely, John organizes these truths around signs and their explanation. From the beginning of his gospel, miracles have been presented as signs, and their meaning and purpose has been explained within the context of Jesus and his mission to save. John says he didn't include all the signs, so how did he pick these? He said that these signs, the ones contained in the last 20 chapters, were picked so that his hearers might believe. And in fact, that's even how he presents the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, not merely as amazing events, but as signs of an even greater spiritual reality. John authored this gospel very carefully, and he is a very skillful writer. Verses like 31 are a good example of that, each word carefully chosen. He tells us that he included these signs so that those who hear them would believe. And we could reasonably ask, believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now the word order and the syntax in Greek are awkward. That's why in English they clean it up a little bit. But I think it's helpful that in the Greek, literally, just a straightforward kind of wooden translation... It says that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. And I think that's important because I think John is giving us some insight into what the key question of his gospel is. Mark's gospel has a key question. Who is this man? Jesus. Gentiles had heard stories or rumors about Jesus, and Mark wants to give them a truthful and useful answer of who he really is. You've heard about Jesus, Mark says? Let me tell you who Jesus really is. But John comes at it from the opposite side. 
not who is Jesus, but who is the Christ, the Messiah. His intended audience includes more Jews and otherwise religious people. And so his gospel is organized to explain that there is a Messiah, the one God will send to save his people from their sin, and that Jesus is that Messiah. Many Jews were waiting on Messiah. That's why Palm Sunday was such a big deal. That's why the people got so fervent in their enthusiasm for Messiah. But they had missed the real significance of the Christ. And so they had missed who Jesus was and cried out instead, crucify him. Even in other religions, religious people have concepts of a savior or a redeemer. But usually as a non-divine messenger sent from God or another God, an adversarial God, come to save the people from the mean one. John answers the question, what is Messiah? His nature, how he fits within God's plan to save. What should we expect from the Christ? And then he recounts sign after sign, all of which point to Jesus as that Messiah. And he punctuates this throughout his gospel with a few key moments, like the one Thomas just gave us, where someone just blurts out that Jesus is the Christ. They blurt out what the signs have proven to be true. Jesus is the Messiah. Liberal scholars, NPR, and the History Channel use differences between the Gospels to claim that the books are contradictory. How could both books be true if John emphasizes Jesus' divinity throughout his Gospel and Matthew plays down Jesus' divinity until the very end? What tragic perhaps purposeful blindness. There's a beautiful literary character unique to each book. Each of the four Gospels shine as facets of the same diamond. The claims of fragmented authorship are also especially ridiculous. Claims that John himself didn't even write many of the portions of this Gospel, and we need to slice and dice it up into sections based on who wrote what? There's no internal consistency here. What a serious, open-minded evaluation of the Gospel of John finds this glorious and beautiful internal consistency. With a debt to Don Carson's commentary for the organization, let me show you this a bit in verse 31, which is essentially a careful summary of the whole book. John's purpose, stated here, has been consistent throughout. He knew exactly what he was doing and exactly how and why he was writing it this way under the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a method to his madness. And his writing has been in service to this purpose, that you would believe and be saved from the very first page. Chapter 1 set up that question that John plans to answer, and it sets up the concepts that are essential to the answer. And now here, in chapter 20, verse 31, his work is basically finished. In chapter 1, he wrote, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And here John concludes, these are written so that you may believe. He wrote this gospel so that those who hear it would be counted among those who receive him and believe in his name. John says that he wants us to believe in the Christ. Back in chapter 1, right after the prologue, after John and Andrew meet Jesus, what does John record Andrew immediately saying to Peter? We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. That's the claim on page 1 of the gospel. It's the claim he wants his hearers to believe. And it's the claim that every sign he includes in this gospel will point to and explain especially in culminating with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Back to the first chapter, the next encounter. What did John record of Nathanael's response to Jesus' call? Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Again, quite a claim. What does it mean? And is it true? And following that claim, John writes page after page of the things that he saw and heard, which prove the claim to be true and explain its importance to humanity. And John said from the beginning that his interest was not that you would have faith just for faith's sake. His interest was that you would have faith so that you could be saved. He writes here that by believing, you may have life in his name. Doesn't that language harken back to chapter 1? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What an astonishing claim. And so here, John says, let me take 19 chapters to explain how I know that claim to be true. So why did John write one more gospel? Well, there are many signs that Jesus did that are not written in this book. Some of them recorded in the other Gospels. Some of them are lost to history. But John wrote these signs, this Gospel, so that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. Thomas was blessed, saved from his sins and given eternal life because of the faith that he had when he saw Jesus and likewise, many will be blessed, saved from sin and given eternal life because of the faith they have when they hear the words of this book. In our church's inquirers class for potential new members, we talk about our worship as being useful for both spiritual growth and evangelism. By focusing on the ordinary means of grace, we don't think we have to pick one or the other. We're able to worship in a way that promotes spiritual growth in believers and challenges and invites unbelievers to respond to God in faith. This worship isn't for one audience or the other. It's effective for both. John's gospel is similar. While his primary purpose is toward evangelism, his method of Jesus' signs, the proof Jesus gives of his claims and what they mean. That method is also effective for the strengthening of faith. One pastor writes that throughout the history of the church, this gospel has served not only as a means for reaching unbelievers, but as a means for instructing, edifying, 
and comforting those who believe. And he says John's purpose in writing was to evangelize, but his impact in writing, the result of his writing, has done far more than he could have imagined. It's gone beyond his hopes. Faith, first and foremost, is of course a gift of God. God gives faith to those he appointed before eternity passed, and he does this for no reason other than his own glory. John has said as much in this gospel many times. And we're not denying this when we also speak about faith as we experience it. Faith, humanly speaking, does no violence to God's sovereignty. For example, kids, some of you believe that Jesus is the Christ because that's what your parents believe. And that's actually not a bad place to start. Many adults started their journey in faith because someone they respect or love made an impression with their faith on them. But it can't stop there. Because that faith doesn't last. That faith is not ultimately in God. It's in another person, even a person that we love and respect. And faith in people cannot save. We can say... I have faith that my parents wouldn't lead me astray, and that's generally true. But as much as they love you, they cannot save you. And I think you know this already, but parents aren't always right about everything. Likewise, we could say, I have faith in some very smart people who believe that Christianity is true. And it's helpful for us that smart and thoughtful people recognize Christianity to be true. But those people cannot save either. And smart people change their minds all the time. Only God, who never changes, can save. And our faith cannot be in them. It must be in him. This is where John offers help to young faith. We don't have to ultimately believe because of the others who believe. And we should. We should believe because look at the signs. Listen to what they mean. Hear the eyewitness testimony of what Jesus said and did, and by the Spirit you will know it to be true. The signs are laid out for us in the gospel. Hear them. And decide for yourself whether or not Jesus is the Christ. All the evidence is there. And while plenty have heard the evidence and choose not to believe, no one can hear it, believe it, and not be changed. And live as though it doesn't make a difference. This is where John's Gospel offers help to growing faith. It has something to say about the role faith should play in our lives. That if these facts are true, it should change everything for us. The signs that John records, this overwhelming evidence that the Christ is Jesus, these signs require, if we believe them, that our lives should be rearranged around this fact. The only reasonable response to believing what John says is all glory to Christ. And what does John offer to older faith? Sorry, more mature faith. He says on the eve of turning 40. What is the effect of reading John as the Christian life goes on? 
I mean, we don't need books about belief, right? We need books about discipline and habits and godliness. If our faith was strong and always getting stronger, that would be true. But is that your experience of faith? It's not mine. I doubt. I doubt what God says. I doubt how much difference it should make in my life. I doubt its power to change me. Instead of feeling connected to you others who abide in the vine, sometimes I feel alone. Alone on one side, thinking that no one else has ever had such thoughtful doubts and objections to what God says as I have. Or I feel alone, as though no one else who calls themselves a Christian has ever had such weak and feeble faith. John offers to help me. He reminds me why God needed to save and the kind of people that he saved. He reminds me of the darkness that had come into the world, preventing even those he had made from knowing him when they saw him. He reminds me that God himself resolved to solve this problem. He didn't draw a map for me to follow. He declared me righteous in his son. He shows me why the world and I needed a Christ. And he shows me beyond all doubt that Jesus is the Christ. And that by the life I live in him, I am not alone. I abide in him and he in me. And John shows me the good shepherd. The good shepherd who calls me out of my sin. Who leads me in paths of righteousness for his own namesake. John shows me the great high priest who intercedes on my behalf. And in fact, who made sacrifice. Who became the sacrifice for my own sin. John shows me signs, not all of them, but many of them, that prove the thing I doubt most, that God is who he is, and that he will do what he said he will do. He gives me a foundation upon which saving faith can be built, and young faith can be nurtured, and mature faith can persevere to the end. Another gospel for the good of God's people, for the glory of God. Thanks.